we are looking through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, Lord willing, next week, we will actually get back there. And uh, we have been considering, um, going through the outline of the things that have been, the things that are, and the things that will be. We are in that interlude between um, the things that have been and the things that will be. And uh, we have been considering a, a brief introduction to biblical prophecy. We have looked at the message of the future throughout the Bible, and we've considered the nature of prophecy, the conveyance of prophecy, um, through the covenants, feasts, Daniel, other prophets, Jesus. And then last week, we were ending it all up with the uh, Paul's writings um, of prophecy, and we didn't finish it. And so we, uh, we are going to continue that today. And so we were coming up to the book of 2 Thessalonians, but just as a quick review of where we were with Paul, we saw that last week, we, went, we started with 2 Timothy chapter 3, looking at what Paul said regarding the last days, and we saw that he talked about the signs of the last days, and that during those last days there would be um, the, these attributes that he put out regarding the people, and basically we summed them all up saying that people as a whole would be self-focused. They would be lovers of themselves, lovers of sensual pleasures rather than lovers of God. They would be all about me rather than about God. And then we saw the attitudes of believers during those times, and that is that we were supposed to turn away from imposters, from that which is false, toward that which is true, and uh, continue then in the truth which we have learned from the time of our youth. Now, for some of us, that may be uh, from the time of our youth, or it may be from the time of our adult youth, or whatever it is. But anyways, continue in the truth. So, uh, quit being distracted by that which is false, and looking to that which is true. We then began looking at the revelation of the mystery. Whereas Paul, in his, a lot of his end-time prophecies, talks about the mystery that, that God had allowed him to understand and to be able to communicate to his people. And we know, we understand that the mystery is the mystery of the church. And so we saw that the foundation of the church in Revelation chapter 11, in Ephesians chapter 3, we saw in there the setting aside of Israel, um, that Israel was because of their unbelief, was going to be set aside. God was going to open up the gospel to the Gentiles. And part of the reasons of opening up the gospel to the Gentiles was that it would make the Jews jealous. Thank you. It would make the Jews jealous. And so, but that the mystery itself was that the, the Gentiles would be joint heirs with the Israelites, joint heirs with the Jews, and we would come by Jesus Christ as one man um, to the Father. And then we saw in Revelation, or Romans chapter 11, the, the salvation of Israel as well. And that, that all Israel would be saved, and we're told that all Israel would be saved after the fullness of the Gentiles had come in. And I related that back to Luke chapter 21, if you remember, that Jesus talking about the time of the Gentiles. And that at the completion, the fullness of the time of the Gentiles, then these things would happen as well. And I said that I believe that one and the same are the, the event. The same words usage is being used to play Roma of the ethnos. And the ethnos being the ethnicities, the nations, the Gentiles that are there. And so play Roma is the fullness of it. So, so we looked at the foundation of the church. In that we saw the setting aside of Israel and the salvation of Israel. And then we began looking at the resurrection of the church, which is the other side of the great mystery. And that is, because it's still about the church, and that is that the church would, would come about, but that when he was done with that mystery, that the church would be removed because God will once again deal with the nation of Israel. And so as he established the church, so he will remove the church in a, in a mighty, majestic way, 
um, mysterious, if you would, um, to many people. And so we looked at um, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 50 to 52, and we saw that there would be the, t- the trumpet, the time of the last trump is actually we have, we should have there, and we, that Paul said it would be when the last trumpet was about to sound, and that there would be this transformation, and that um, we would take, uh, have our, uh, our immortal would put off and put on, or I mean our mortal would be taken off and put on immortality, that this um, corruptible would be taken off and we would put on incorruption, and so an exciting time and in Philippians chapter 3, we're told that our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the um, coming of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile bodies that they may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And so we're told elsewhere as well that there is coming that time when this flesh, this body of sin is going to be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, in a great metamorphosis, and that we will have this incorruptible body. We then looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and in chapter 5, and we saw the order of the rapture, and that is that those who were dead would go first, that they would be raised first, and then those who are alive, and we discussed then how that could happen. <clears throat> and we had a little bit of debate on all that, and a little bit of discussion of how all that could happen. But the reality is, from our perspective, what the Bible teaches from the perspective of time, and that is to be absent from the body, is to be present with, the Lord, and that when I die, my spirit goes to be with him, but bodily, it's not there yet. And so bodily, um, at the rapture, my body and my spirit are joined together, and then those who are alive are, are joined up to meet us in the clouds. And then we saw then the nature of the rapture in the, the word harpazo, and I don't know if you remember that, but it's the word which means to be taken up, to be snatched that Jesus is going to come and he's going to pluck us, he's going to snatch us. It's the word that usually is translated to rapturo in the Latin, which is where we get our word rapture. And so we, and we talked about how the birds of the air come um, when the sower of the seed sows the seed, and the, um, the, the seed that was sown upon the, the, the way, the road, that the birds of the air come and they pluck it, they harpazo it up, they snatch it up. And that we talked about as well how Jesus talked about the good shepherd, and he talked about the hireling and how the hireling was there, and that um, that when the when the wolves came, when the when the the, the enemies came, that the, the hireling flees, and then the, the wolf then turns around and he harpazos the sheep. He snatches the sheep because the hireling is gone. But that Jesus himself was a good shepherd, and that nobody was going to be able to harpazo us out of his hands, and nobody was going to be able to harpazo us out of his father's hands. And that's where he goes and says, I and the Father are are one. And so that's the, talking about the violent plucking, the violent snatching away. And the last illustration we used regarding that as well was Philip. When Philip was on the, the was taken and sent down to the road to talk to the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch gets saved because of the preaching of the prophet Isaiah. He gets baptized and as they come up out of the word, out of the word, out of the water, <laughs> and uh, out of the water, then, then we're told that the, the spirit of the Lord comes in Harpazos Philip. He snatches Philip up in a way so that the Ethiopian eunuch sees him no longer. And then he deposits Philip someplace else. An amazing thing. So anyways, and so we talked about how that is going to be effective to us then in those days ahead when Jesus Christ comes and he harpazos us. The question was asked, do I think that that's going to be done um, without anybody seeing it? Or is that going to be visible? I think it's going to be visible because we're going to meet him where? 
in the air, in the clouds. We know that Jesus is going to come in the clouds, and that's when that's going to happen. The mystery is going to be fulfilled. <clears throat> and so I believe that that's going to be something that's not going to be necessarily um, secretive, but I think it's going to be the last great sign, honestly. I think it will be the, the last major sign for the world um, of, of Jesus Christ. They'll, they will see the rapture of the church. They will understand that it was all true. And we'll talk about that a little bit more this morning. Um, and then they will have a chance to respond or not. Then finally we saw the timing of the rapture. We saw that it was going to be after, it's going to come after a time when they're saying peace and safety. Again, whether that's from the perspective of the Jews in Jerusalem and Israel, or whether that's of the world, it could be either one. Um, much prophecy is actually given from the perspective of Jerusalem and, and Israel. And so I think that they will be, um, I think this is an indicator that it will actually be in Israel, that they'll be paying, saying peace and safety. I, I think then, and I didn't get a chance to really talk more about this last week, but I think that there's indicators there to me then. Now, understand I'm extrapolating at this point. I, this is not biblical. I, I'm Bob's musing and Bob's extrapolations of what does that mean then if, if Israel's saying peace and safety. Well, very clearly, over the last um, 40 years, Israel hasn't been able to really declare that. There has been um, not peace in the Middle East. We've been discussing that for, for many years. Jimmy Carter probably got the closest to bringing peace in the Middle East, and at least that's what people think. Um, and so, um, but it, it has never really held. There has been a false peace. Well, I think that there will be another time of extreme false peace that, that is there. There will be, I think, and we'll see this as we go into the book of Revelation, I think that there's going to be that covenant that's going to be made. Um, and I think that, um, and we'll talk about this a little bit more today, because the, the, the man of lawlessness, the man of sin being revealed, that there will be this, um, potentially, if you would, and I'm, I'm bringing in some of Revelation here, okay? So I'm extrapolating, bringing things together, that there potentially will be this seven-year covenant, this seven-year um, agreement for peace. Maybe even Israel, as we've seen through the prophets, because the temple is going to be rebuilt, maybe it will be even that there will be this deal to give the Jews back the temple mounts. Um, I can't imagine a, a time for Israel when there would be a, a greater time when they would be saying shalom, 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 shalom. That there was this national internal tranquility that would be going on in the land is for them to have peace with their neighbors and having the temple being restored. I could be wrong by that. But we're told that after this time where they're saying peace and safety, but it's going to be before God pours out his wrath. And so, so that kind of gives us a little bit of clues as we go to the book of Revelation, okay, um, where this, is, this might take place, okay? And then today we want to go into, continue on now, into the book of 2 Thessalonians, uh, chapter 2, uh, actually chapter 1, verses, beginning of verse 3. I expanded this a little bit. Remember I said last week, apparently the Lord wants me to spend a little bit more time on it. So as I spend a little bit more time on it, I was really impressed that I needed to go into chapter 1 because there's even more prophecy in chapter 1 that I was going to just kind of slide on through. And so we want to look at that today. So we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians, beginning of chapter 1, verse 3, to chapter 2, verse 12. Okay? And the first thing we want to look at, and Steve has already read this um, this morning, is first of all the punishment of the unbelievers. And that's in chapter 1. So if you would, look with me in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we see that in this, that um, 
verse 3 to 7, we're told that God is going to um, kind of come along beside us, if you would. He's, he is going to justify us. He is going to bring vindication for us. And he goes on, he says, We're bound to thank God always for you, brethren. This is verse 3. As is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly in the love of every one of you all bounds towards each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who tribulate you or trouble you, and to give you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So God says, it's a, you know, through Paul, that it's a righteous thing for God to bring this vindication back on, this vengeance. I will, you know, Paul, um, God said through Paul in the book of Romans, he says, um, um, I'm going to mess this up in chapter 12, vengeance is mine, I, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord, right? And so that I'm supposed to return um, evil with what? With good. I'm supposed to love those who despitefully use me, knowing that God himself is going to be the one who actually stands up on my side. And so that's what Paul says right here. And so in that, we're then told about how he's going to punish it. How he's going to punish it and why he's going to punish him. And in verse 8 we read, in flaming fire, that, we'll go back to verse 7, to read in context, and to give you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first thing is that we want to see is the reason why this punishment is going to come, and that is that we're told here in verse 8 is because they're going to receive this punishment not only because of what they've done to us, okay? But the reality is what they've done to us is because of this reason, and that is because they do not know God. And in John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus gives us I think, a definition of what eternal life is. What, and he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And so the reality is that life eternal, truly having eternal life, is a matter of knowing God. Now I understand we say it's by faith, and we'll talk about that a little bit as well. And it is by faith. But by faith it is coming to what? To know God. It is coming into a relationship with the Father. And so to know Him. Not just know Him factually, which is the word oida in the Greek, but to know Him relationally, which is our word gnosko. And that's what Jesus is talking about, and that's what Paul is talking about as well. And that these people, it's not a matter of talking about that they didn't know Him factually, but they didn't know Him relationally. God speaks through Paul in Romans chapter 1 and says that, that every man on the face of the earth has a knowledge of God. That when we look out into creation, that man has a knowledge of God. We just make a decision of whether we want to what? Suppress the truth or not. And so at that point, the reality is, once I factually know about God, the question is, do I want to go to the next step and to submit or relationally know God. Does that make, I mean, that's really where it all boils down to, but that's exactly right. Submit, and submit is submit to the plan of God, and that is God wants to have a relationship with me. And to me, that's a mind-boggling thing. It's not just a, 
you know, I, I look at a lot of these religions, quote-unquote, out there, and they do not have a God. I mean, I don't think of it, I know of any other religion that has a personal God who wants to have a relationship with them. It's always a God who fully wants to be served in that alone. So, here we're told that this punishment is going to come upon them. First of all, they do not know not. They do not know God. And secondly, they don't obey Christ's gospel. And what is that? Well, John chapter 6, I think a passage that is misused by a certain breed of theology, um, but is very clear to me. And Jesus um, has an interaction with um, these people in John 6, verse 28 and 29. Jesus had just fed the multitude. And then he moves on to Capernaum. He's moving that way. They're looking for him. They can't find him. And so they find out that he actually started um, going over to Capernaum. And so they start walking. And they start heading over that way. So Jesus is on a boat. He's going over to Capernaum. The, the crowds are walking along the shore. And they meet him there. Okay, understand they didn't have power boats at the time. Okay, so it wasn't like they got on the boat and they went... And, you know, they, they got over to Capernaum in a couple minutes and then... You know, a couple hours later, the people. They could almost walk as fast as, as taking a boat sometimes, okay? And so the people walked along the shore, and they got there right around the same time, and, and they came up to Jesus, and Jesus rebuked them because he said, you know, you're not, you're not coming to me because you really want me to feed you spiritually. You're coming to me because I fed you physically. And, and so, so there's this debate that goes on, and so they said to Jesus, what shall we do? that we may work the works of God. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. What is the only quote-unquote work that you can do for salvation? Faith. Belief. That's exactly right. This is the gospel in a nutshell. It's not, I mean, according to the Jews, the Jews wanted to know what? Which laws were the most important laws, to make sure that they were, they were appeasing God enough that they were doing the works of the laws well enough. And so later on, they come to Jesus and they ask, teacher, which is the what? Greatest commandment of the law. I mean, you understand why they're doing that is because, again, they want to know what's, what's the most important thing that I'm supposed, to be, I'm supposed to be obeying. And Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And to love your neighbor is a second leg unto it, because on these two laws hang all the other laws and prophets. In other words, if you really focus on loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if you really focus on loving your neighbor as yourself, guess what? You don't have to worry about whether you're fulfilling all the law or not. Because you, by nature, will. Because you will be desiring the things that God desires. You will be looking over the, the needs of your neighbors. And so Jesus came here and he said that this is the gospel, if you would, in a nutshell, and that is, you need to believe in Christ. You need to believe in him whom the Father sent. Well, who was the one that the Father sent? At least Jesus was claiming that, right? And we believe that's true, and that is Jesus Christ. And so they did not obey Christ's good news. And we understand that the word gospel comes from um, a, an amalgamation of two words, and that is the word God's spell. Okay, God's spell. And so you put gospel, 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 it comes together. And that was in the, the days of Breton. Some of you are looking at me, and so let me give you a little entomology here. I think it's the right word, entomology. Is that right? I always get the, the study of ants and the study of words mixed up. Et etymology is ants, right? Ah, yeah, oh, see, entomology. See, I did. So it was a study of ants. Anyways, 
Etymology. Yeah, anyways. So if you, you can either study, this week we were studying ants, we were doing entomology as we, as we killed them all. Anyways, um, but the, the etymology of, of the word gospel is when, the, when they took the good news of Jesus Christ, when they took the plan of salvation to the Bretons, which was Britain, okay, and they had all the different tribes at that time, these people would accept the good news of Jesus Christ and their lives would be changed. They would be transformed by the word of God. And so the people who used to know them, in a sense, didn't recognize them anymore. They didn't act anything like that. And so because they were a very superstitious group, they believed that these people were under a God spell. And that somebody had cast a spell on them. You know, these Christians came up and they they put this spell on them. And so they called it a God spell. And so you can see how then God spell. Does anybody know what good, goodbye means? God be with you. Yeah, it's actually, that's where it comes from. God be with you. By is actually was be apostrophe ye. Anyways, be with you. God be with you. So that's where goodbye actually originates from too. But anyways, the word gospel. So this, they did not obey Christ's gospel if you would, in the, in, the, um, in, the, in the the Bible, when you're reading it, you could actually put in good news. Ungalios, the good message, is what's there. And so, the good message of Christ was that you don't have to obey the letter of the law in order to be saved. All you have to do is believe in the one whom the Father sent. And so, these people who were persecuting the church weren't doing either one of those things. They didn't know God. And they weren't obeying the gospel. And so because of that, they ultimately are going to receive the punishment. Now, the, the important point here, and we talked about this, eh, hinted on it in some of the conversations during Sunday school, and that is that really what ultimately it brings condemnation. There's two, it's two-sided coin, right? Is not receiving the salvation that God has given you. So the other side of that, the flip side of that is rejecting the plan of God. Do you get it? And so people always debate this one over and over again. Are you saved by receiving the gospel or are you condemned by rejecting the gospel? And the answer is yes. That's exactly right. Um, because to not do one is to do the other. I mean, they go hand in hand. And so it's a moot point, really, from that point. You, when I'm presenting to somebody, the reality is I'm going to present to them the gospel salvation for them to receive it. But if they reject it, if they don't know, choose to not know the name of God, and if they choose not to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, then what are they choosing? They're choosing condemnation. They're choosing death. That's exactly right. So, that's the reason. And now the extent of this is, first of all, we're told here as well, in verse 9, these shall be punished with temporary discomfort. Is that what it says? doesn't say that. Everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now what's interesting in this is that this everlasting destruction or if you would I have on here everlasting separation because this word for destruction really doesn't mean annihilation. It really lends toward a, um, the, the concept of, of um, unusability, I, I guess. And so there's a separation that's going on there. Um, the Jehovah Witnesses will take this and they will bring this into a, a, an annihilation. 
So destruction means that it's what? Like if you said the building was destroyed, it's no more, it's gone. That's not what the word means, okay? The word really means more of a punishment separation concept that's going on there. They will suffer everlasting separation, note the first thing, from the presence of the Lord. That by itself is punishment. And you know, I, I love this meditation for me as I was going through this because of the fact that as a believer, I allow myself to experience some of the same condemnation when I separate myself from God. Now, am I saying, you know, positionally, eternally? No. But the reality is, if I get out of fellowship, quote-unquote, with God, I'm out of His Word, I'm, I'm not in His presence, I'm not praying to Him, the reality is, I'm not in His presence. And if I'm not in His presence, there really is a concept of punishment. There is suffering that's there. The joy that could have been mine in my life is not there because I am not spending my time with Him. Now, take that, if you've ever, if you, if you can comprehend that, okay? And, and I think most of you can. Now, take that and now multiply it. Give it a magnitude of an eternal scale. Which is mind-boggling, right? That's what they're going to live with forever. They're going to be living outside of the presence of God forever. I don't get it. Jesus says in Mark chapter 9 very clearly that it's better for you to go into the paradise with your, your hand cut off than to, to enter into destruction um, to, to go on where there's... Um, yeah, with your hand intact to the place where the worm dies not, the fire dies not, and the worm dies not. You know. and, and I just think of the, the turmoil, the anguish that's going to be there primarily is because they're apart from the presence of God, the presence of the Lord. But secondly, we're told that they're going to be separated from the strength of the Lord. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're told to um, put on... Uh, I hope I've got it here. My mind is blanking on me today. Finally, my brethren, be strong or empowered in the Lord and in the power or the vigor of His might, of His strength. And the, the, the word strength here is also the word that is used in Peter when it says, if anyone... Let, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability, the strength, which God supplies. And that's the concept of the word strength or might here, as opposed to the word power. There is the word power, which is the word dunamos, where we get our word dynamite from, which talks about this explosive power, you know. But this word strength really talks about the things that somebody does, the abilities that they do, the, the ability that they have. And so, again bring this into this, that these people are going to be eternally separated, have an everlasting separation from the things that God can do for them. The abilities of God. If you would, by extrapolation, the blessings of God. I don't know what heaven's going to be like. <clears throat> but I heard David Jeremiah say this once, years ago. And we're going to be starting to look at these passages in, in weeks to come, that he said, he was talking to somebody once, and they said that, you know, it sounds to them like heaven's going to be this boring place. 
because all they're doing is bowing before the throne. You know, and he says, I think it was David Jeremiah. It might have been uh, Tony, uh, Tony Evans. Anyways, he says, and, and his response was, you've got to read the whole, whole passage. He says, I don't think they're just staying on their face all the time. I think they're getting down and worshiping God, and they get back up, and they see what? Something new. They see something new about God, or God do something different, and it causes them to do what? To want to worship him again. He says, that doesn't sound boring to me at all. And I think, I mean, you know, is there going to be this concept where Jesus talks about um, of the, the place of turmoil and the, and the place of paradise? You know, when he, when he talked about the, the rich man and Lazarus and how Lazarus died and he went to the bosom of Abraham and the rich man died and he went into turmoil. And he said it was hot there and he wanted Lazarus to, to bring over some water just to put it on to cool his tongue a little bit. And he says, oh, I can't do that. There's this this chasm between you and me so that you can't come here and we can't go there. And he said, well, at least send them to my, my, my brothers. And he said, you know, we can't do that. So, I wonder if there's going to be this concept where these people who are suffering everlastingly are going to be able at times to look over somehow and see the blessings that you and I, if you know Jesus Christ, will live in forever. That they will have a concept of God's abilities and God's strength and God's blessings upon his people. And then bring that back then. But they'll be separated from that presence forever and ever and ever. And to realize that they chose a fleeting moment of pleasure over the eternal riches of God. Moses, we're told, when he had the opportunity to take the, the, um, the riches of Egypt, we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, that he counted them as nothing because he rather desired the riches of God. Well, what riches did he have? Wait, what, what, what kingdom did Moses have? For 40 years, he did what? Well, before that, he shepherded sheep. He shepherded sheep. He lived in a wilderness. And then for 40 years, as the king, if you would, <laughs> he wandered in a wilderness with a bunch of grumbling, grumbling people. And so we're told that he exchanged the glories and the riches and the treasures of Egypt for the glories and the riches and the treasures of God. From the earthly perspective, Moses got a raw deal. True statement. But Moses wasn't looking to the here and now. What about us? Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 6, doesn't he? Don't lay up treasures on earth where the moth and the rust corrupt. But rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now I don't understand how those treasures are being laid up in heaven. I don't understand what it means that, to, to have that, that reward system. Okay? But I think that potentially Jesus is giving us an indicator that it's potentially there. And I think that what I'm reading here, and I'm extrapolating again as well, is that when those who go to the other side, go to the other side, they understand the sense of loss. 
and the weight of the loss. How long is eternity? It's eternal, isn't it? How long is everlasting? Boy, it's everlasting. I mean, you know, we think of everything by the concept of time, and so I can't comprehend infinity. Because infinity plus one is what? Infinity. And it doesn't matter how far in the number line you go, you can still put another title to it. Does anybody know what a heptillion is? Or an octillion? A nontillion? A dectillion? What's a nontillion, Chris? Well, I don't really remember how many years, but I've read all my Bible. What does a nontillion come after? That's exactly right. It comes after all the way to the very end of the octillions, then you get the nontillions. I mean, and we can't even comprehend how many trillions that we're in debt as the as United States. I mean, I don't know when it's going to stop, when we get past the quadrillions, the quintillions, the, you know, just hectillions. It's just an amazing thing. And so when you think about that many years, and it's still going to go on that many years, amazing. So, the punishment of the unbelievers. But the other side that we want to look at, and that we were going to be looking at last week, and that is the precursors of the gathering. Because we're told, then, as he makes this transition from this, um, how God is going to come and he's going to vindicate you and he's going to take vengeance upon those who are the unbelievers who are bringing tribulation and trial upon your life, that he says, beginning of verse, uh, verse 1, chapter 2, he says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him. Now, that is important by itself before we go on to these precursors because, again, it's that indicator of how the rapture is going to be. There are... Um, various theological points out there, teachings out there. Um, amillennialism. Amillennialism says that there is no millennium. Okay? And we'll get to that in months from now when we get to Revelation 20 and we see that there really is a literal millennium that's there. Okay? And they say that's not really a literal millennium, even though that God said a thousand years, 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 ten thousand times. It really doesn't matter. That, that thousand years isn't literal. They believe that there's no millennial reign of Christ. They believe that, that Israel is, n is not God's chosen people anymore. They believe that the church has supplanted Israel. Now, I think that we have seen enough as we've come through all the prophecies, okay, throughout Israel and even the book of Romans, and as we've considered this, that that isn't true in and of itself. I mean, it's just, it's, it's gone because God has promised that he will once again deal with the nation of Israel specifically. Um, but that view that amillennialism, they also believe that Jesus Christ has already come back. They believe that he's already returned. And which is really interesting as we begin to read this again because Paul says don't listen to those people who said that he's already returned because these things have to happen before he returns, right? And so they say that Jesus came back in the clouds. But it wasn't the clouds, cumulus, and stratospheres type stuff that are going on up there. They say, no, he came in the, the clouds of the hoofbeats of the Roman army. That when the Roman army came to destroy Jerusalem, that there was such a, a great army that the clouds raised up behind them and, um, and that Jesus was figuratively present in those clouds. Right, the Roman army descended out of the heavens. No, that was all figurative. And so... Right, so we have seen enough to know that what? Is that true? 
It's not true. But you would be surprised how many believers today still believe that. I remember the first time I got a letter from somebody that, that shared that. I thought they were some cults. I, I, I did. I, 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 thought, I thought this has to be a cult. And then I realized that no, Presbyterians, if you go down, and this is not picking on them, okay? Because I'm not saying they're not believers then. You go down to first Presbyterian, that's what you're going to be taught as eschatology. All millennialism. All millennialism. Okay? Because that is the Presbyterian view. Now, some will go to post-millennialism, but most will be all millennial. Nathan? I thought that they believed that we're currently in the millennium. There is no millennium. And so, in a sense, it is figuratively now, because there is the war, um, Armageddon is the battle between good and evil, and so we, we kind of go through that as well. Yeah. But they, Satan is bound, and, um, and, and all that kind of stuff. It's not so subtle. Have you heard the terminology preterism? Preterism. That, that's right. Is this the same thing? Um, yes. There are, when we get into eschatology, now understand, I just generalized. Okay? And, and so I can generalize by saying there's premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Okay? But within each of those millennialisms, there are shades of views. And so even in premillennialism, there's what? Historic premillennialism. There's, um, uh, Traditional, anyways. So, um, so, but yes, preterist view has a lot of meanings for that. <laughs> Hank Hanegraaff. Pretend you don't even see that on there. Anyways, <laughs> ah, uh, it's anathema. Anyways, uh, <laughs> and I'm using it. Anyways, um, I like some of his, his stuff, but he clearly is preterist, all millennial. It's you know, it's all figurative, and I and I think, how can somebody read so much of the Bible, understand it, and then just kind of wash the rest of this away. I, it's just, it's mind-boggling to me. Now, let's get off of them and quit picking on them for a moment. Let's pick on Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, they say that Jesus came back in the early 1900s, and they still stick to it. I think, you poor folks. I mean, and they believe only 144,000 are going to be saved. You know, and I think, why are you out knocking on my door? I don't get it. I mean, I just, I really don't get it. I mean, you, you're trying to become one of those 144,000. I mean, you know. Anyways, it, it's so unbiblical. It's just not according to Scripture. And I think, for myself, and I know, I'm not saying I understand everything 100% right, because I'm, I'm a fallible, finite individual. I know when I get before God's throne, I'll be amazed at how many things I misunderstood. On this side, I don't think I'm misunderstanding anything. But, uh, but... But the reality is, I know that somewhere along the line, what? I probably am. I mean, think about it. If you think that you're misunderstanding something, you're going to change your opinion on it. You're going to at least study it some more. I hope you are, anyway, to, to, to find out what the truth is. Okay? So, but I understand that even though I stand on something as truth, that I believe it's truth, that there's potential for me to be wrong. Okay? But some things are pretty clear. And, and the, the, at least for me. And, and, and I look at these things and I say, how can you not get it. Well, this one is very clear, isn't it? Because it says, concerning our what? Our gathering together to Him. Is there going to be a, literally a gathering together to Christ and we're told as well from Acts chapter 1, how's it going to be? In the 
the clouds. Right? And we saw that from 1 Thessalonians as well. And so, I don't know how you can misunderstand that. And so, if the if Jesus came in the in the, the clouds of the the hoofbeats, then what should have happened to the church? Not taken up, but taken into the clouds. Trampled? I mean, you know, whatever. I, I'm not quite sure, but if, if we're supposed to be gathered together in that gathering, then if Jesus is figuratively coming, then we should be figuratively meeting him in the, in the, in that, that doesn't wash to me. Does that make sense? I mean, you just pair spiritual things with spiritual things, and it just it doesn't make sense. So, so I want you to just kind of, even some of these little small little details are very important details. So, this gathering, what are some of the precursors? What are some of the things that are going to be happening? Well, clearly, as well, before we get into some of these, there are going to be those who tell us that it's already happened. Paul says in verse 2, Don't be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, had come. Let no one deceive you by any means. I understand that there are going to be those who are out there who are going to be seeking to do what? They're going to be seeking to deceive you. So don't be surprised when all these different theologies, when all these different brands of religion come about and they're going to tell you something different than the truth. Satan is who? The deceiver. And he's going to bring out deception all the time. And so we have got to be ardent to know truth at all times. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. No, note that all that is how? In italicies. What does italicies mean? It wasn't really there in the original. So let no one deceive you by any means, for unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So we note that there is these things that are going to happen before the day of Christ returns, or before the gathering, if you would, comes back. And the first thing is that there is going to be this period of apostasy. Now, I use the word apostasy rather than the, the, the term falling away because the Greek word here is the word apostasy. That's where we get our word apostasy from, directly from the Greek, apostia, apostasia. And so this apostasia means to forsake or turn or fall away from something. And so when you read then this period of falling away, this period of forsaking, this period of apostasy, what does it mean? Who is it referring to? Is it referring to the unregenerate? Theoretically, is it referring to those who are pagans and, and don't mind telling you? How do you turn away if you were never turned towards? That's exactly right. So who is it referring to? Those who are supposed to Those who apparently are believers. But Jesus said, now again, spiritual things, spiritual things, and I hope you're not forgetting all the other prophecies that we've looked at because we haven't had ten hours to look at all these things together and kind of point them all together. But Jesus said in those days, in the last days, that what? Because evil will abound, the love of many will wax cold. And that, that when Antichristos and Antichristoi, the, the, the false... Christ come, those who say they have an anointing and they don't, and they're able to do all these wonderful works, that if it was possible, they would be able to deceive even the very elect, which means that they're going to be able to what? Deceive a whole lot of people. So when those days come, we read that there's going to be this period of falling away. There's going to be people who 
apparently, or seem to have been, believers who will turn away from their profession, who will turn away from the truth, who will fall away from the good news of Jesus Christ. And we wonder, how, how can they deny it? How can they go there? And if you open up your eyes and you begin to read things um, in, this, in, in the newspapers, in the magazines, um, look toward theology and toward people in religion, it is happening. There are those who appeared at first to be conservative believers who are starting to change the way they think about things. Homosexuality, we talked about that last week. How many people are starting to be inclusive? Um, what's the, the politically correct word? Um, tolerant, thank you, tolerant. Becoming tolerant toward those things. Now understand, I am not in vengeance toward a homosexual, but the sin of homosexuality is still an abomination before the eyes of God. And I'm not going to walk away from that. I'm not going to begin to excuse it like we joked last week about how the, not joke, but talk about how the, the people are doing that today. How they're starting to justify homosexuality as being a part of the creative act of God. And how the Episcopalian priest, um, woman priest, lady priest, priestess, I don't know what you call her. Anyways, um, is justifying abortion as a blessing of God. And, and we who are opposed to it are the ones who are inhibiting the blessings of God. The, start, the day when we call evil good and good evil. And, and it's an amazing thing. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Give me one second, Chris. When persecution comes, not if, when persecution comes to whatever land it is, you will always find out who true believers are. Because those who are false will do what? They'll turn away. They'll forsake it. They'll flee. Whether it's for the, because of the, the, the lust of the flesh, and lust of the eyes and the pride of life, the, the, the weeds, if you would, that grow up and choke them out, or whether it's because of the tribulation and the persecution, the heat of the day, which causes them to be burnt out because they have no root. It makes Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed become more understandable that only those who are fruitful, only those who go to the end and begin to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit are the ones who are really saved. Chris, sir, what was your question? Why would you say that? Why would the woman priest say that? Because she doesn't know God. Christopher, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Paul says, he says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy because I'm fearful that someone may come in with another Jesus, another gospel, or another spirit. And you may very well accept them. And then he talks about these ones a little bit. And then he says about them later in the chapter. He says, for these are false apostles. They are workers of the devil who transform themselves into being ministers of righteousness. And this is no marvel, for Satan himself also transforms himself into being an angel of light. Therefore, it's no wonder that his ministers also transform themselves into being ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. There are out there today, overtly even, workers of the devil, standing behind pulpits. And that's why my challenge is to you all and whoever, you know, whoever hears the tapes, whoever, when I'm at the WANA conference or whatever, to check me out. To make sure that what I'm teaching is, is true. We debated, even in Sunday school, about some of the things, you know. 
if, it, if it's not something biblical, if it's an extrapolation, I want to be able to be honest with it and tell you that this is my musing, this is my extrapolation, this is something where, where Bob is dealing with, you check it out. Okay? If it's something I really feel ver- firmly about, I'm going to say that, that I feel very firmly from this on the scriptures. But still, you need to what? Check me out. Because if I'm telling you something that's not true, it needs to be dealt with. That's why at the end of the service we have the opportunities for questions and answers. And I'm grateful, I'm thankful, I'm ecstatic about the, the, the conversation that's happening even in the midst of, quote-unquote, this presentation of, of, of the Word of God. Because it's supposed to be a dialogue. And if I'm say, not saying something that's true, something ought, somebody ought to stop me and say, Bob, that's not biblical. You know, you're, you're going someplace that's not biblical. So why, why would you do that, Chris? You got me. I don't know. I'd like to give her the best of motives and say she really believes that. But maybe she's led of the devil. Does she have any rationale? No. Not at all. No scripture at all. Um, it, it's, it's relative truth. Because every good and perfect gift is from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow of turning, right? So if every good and perfect gift is from the Father, and this, this, is a, this has been a, a blessing. And here's where they start, though. It's where they always start. A woman who's been raped. A woman's been raped. And what a blessing that God has given us the privilege of this woman being cleansed of this impurity that was in her. And they always start there. I mean, think about it. When, when there's always a debate on abortion, where does it always get to? For the rape and the, the life of the... Well, no, no, they don't even start at health of the mother. They, 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 they always start at the life of the mother. That, that's the, that's the, the... Boils down the nitty-gritty of it. Because who's going to argue when there comes a life-and-death decision between the mom and the baby? Yes? I mean, who's, who's going to argue there? I mean, you know, clearly you've got these other children and you've got a husband who needs you and, and so da-da-da-da. And so you, the minute you give away the point right there, okay, which you may give away. I mean, I'm not saying it's wrong to give that away. I'm just, do you understand? That we can, I don't want to go there right now. We can debate that a little bit more. But the minute you give away that point, if you give that point away, the, the can of worms is now opened up. Because, well, what about this is a blessing, and this is a blessing, and this is a blessing. And now everything becomes not geared upon absolute truth, but upon my interpretation of truth and what is good to me, not what is good to God. And that's what we talked about last week. I think it was last week or a couple weeks ago, about what is good. Good is that which is God declares to be good. And we're not living in those days anymore. And we've got to really have that in our mind. I mean... Until we do, we're, we are going to be just surprised everywhere we go because the world does not think like, well, ho- hopefully, like we think. I mean, if, you, if you're thinking like the world right now, you've got a problem, okay? The, 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 more, the darker the world becomes, the more you ought to be able to realize there's something different about me, you know, between me and the world. But secondly, there's not just a period of apostasy, but it's going to be after the man of sin 
is revealed. Now, note what it says about this man of sin. Um, we get this description of him, first of all, and he is called the son of perdition. Does anybody else know somebody that was called a son of perdition? Judas. Judas. Judas Iscariot was called a son of perdition. When Judas was called the son of perdition, the son of condemnation, if you would, is really what the, the concept there is, the, the word means, the, the, of damnation and condemnation, the son of condemnation. When he was referred to that, you know, he was when they were choosing the disciples, but ultimately, the fruition of that term came about at the time of the, the Last Supper, right around that time frame. What do we know happened at, at that time when there was the, 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 the Passover celebration? He was possessed by Satan. He was possessed by Satan. Satan entered into him, and he, and he went and did that which was ordained of him to do. And so therefore he was the son of perdition, because at that moment... He really was the embodiment of the devil. Now I'm not saying that he was the devil, but understand what I'm saying, that he was the son of perdition. So this one who comes in the future, this potentially antichrist, um, the antichrist, um, who's going to come, this leader who's going to come, is going to be called, this man of sin, he's going to be called the son of perdition, the son of condemnation. We have a good then indicator of who this individual is. Is going to be the embodiment of. He's going to embody who? Satan. Okay? Or at least all the teachings of Satan. The deceptiveness of Satan. The the accusing nature of Satan. We're told that he is going to be the opposer of and exalt, opposes everything that is called God and he's going to exalt himself above all that is called God. Now, I, I put God in quotes there because again, to highlight the fact that what Paul is saying, because looking to the future, of all that is called, called God. And I left God as a capital G, so I didn't offend anybody here, okay? But honestly, if I'm translating this, I'm going to put a little g there. Do anybody know what the difference between a little g and a big g is? Yeah. The true God, his name God, is capital G. All others are false gods, idols, and they're little g's. Okay? And so I would put a little g here. Okay? Because um, you could put the big g, but you kind of put both of them there. Because it's, it's everything that is called God. Not just my God. He's not just going to put himself above my God. But this guy is going to come and he's going to put himself above Buddha, Confucius. Above all the, the, the Hindu gods. I mean, all the, the um, Om and, and all the other... They've they got so many, I don't know them all. Uh, he's going to put himself above Allah. He's going to put himself above all these other gods that are out there. And he's going to be the one who's going to seek to be worshipped. Okay? Now, understand what it said so far. That the gathering is not going to come until this man is what? Revealed. Are you? Don't lose track of this. Okay? Because... Again, in a lot of traditions, and a lot of teachings, okay, we like to, to, to believe that um, we're going to be taken up before this guy is revealed. Okay? But apparently this 
man of sin, this son of perdition, this one who is going to have himself be exalted above all that is called God, is going to be revealed. Now, to what extent? I'm not positive, okay? But he's going to be revealed prior to the gathering of the saints. Now, the second thing we see about him is his destruction. And we're told two things here, and I put the Greek words, I know that for a couple of you, you may understand it, for most of you, you don't, but I'll read it to you. The, the first thing we're told here is that he is going to um, be, and let me, I want to read it to you um, in, the, in the English first, in verse 8. It says, In the lawlessness, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now this first word, consume, analozo, uh, means to consume or use up. So kind of bring that concept in here, that when you read this, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord, Jesus Christ, will use up. He will spend with the breath, the spirit, the pneumos of his mouth. Okay? So God, when Jesus Christ comes, He's going to open up his mouth, whether it's going to be just a, a breath like that, or whether it's the conversation, okay, whether it's the debate. I'm not quite positive how all that's going to be, because I don't think that this is just the battle of Armageddon where the, where the spirit, you know, where the two-edged sword comes out and that kind of stuff, okay? But he's going to use them up. He's going to spend them. He's going to consume them with the, with the breath of his mouth. And secondly, he's going to... Um, Render him ineffective. And that's the word to destroy there. To render ineffective. This word, um, render ineffective, is the same word that is used in Luke 13, verse 7, where it's talking, where Jesus is giving the, the parable, he's giving a little picture <clears throat> about the, the, the tree the, uh, that's not bearing fruit. And, and he's, he comes and he says, we might as well what? Cut it down because it's what? It's using up, making, frivolously using up the ground. The word there is, it's, it, it is rendering the ground ineffective. In other words, the space that it's taking up is ineffective. It's unfruitful. It's unproductive. Okay? That's our word. And then in Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 6, this word is used over and over and over again um, in conjunction to the law. You may see it as the word uh, annulled, nullified, negated, okay, in your translations. Um, and again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28, when we're told about how God chose the weak things, God chose the, the foolish things, to make the other things, to render them ineffective. To those that are wise, and those that are strong, and those that are noble, that he's going to render them ineffective, is, is our word. Um, and then as well, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, when it talks about the, the gifts of prophecy and the gift of knowledge, it says where there is prophecy, they will vanish away. They will be rendered ineffective. Where there is knowledge, it will be done away with. Same word, same exact word. It will be rendered ineffective. Um, and then again in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, where it talks about death and the power of death. And the word there is that how it will be nullified, done away with, and it's our word to be rendered ineffective. So, Bring all that together now into this lawless one, into this man of sin, this son of perdition, this one who is exalting himself together. When Jesus Christ comes with the breath of his mouth, the words of his mouth, okay, he is going to consume this guy. 
I liken it to as an application, not necessarily the exact interpretation, okay? When Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to say in the day when you are going to be taken and, and held accountable for me. Because I will what? I'll give you the words to speak in that day. Do you remember when Peter and John were held before the Sanhedrin? And the Sanhedrin was what? They were dumbfounded. They were used up in a sense. They had no response. They were rendered ineffective, if you would. All they could say about Peter and John were what? They'd been with Jesus. They didn't know what to say. There was a, there was a, guy, a lame man who had been lame for, for the time of his birth who's now walking. What do they say? These were fishermen. These weren't guys who had been to college. They hadn't been sitting under the feet of Gamaliel. They were just ordinary guys from Galilee, if nothing else. I mean, of all things. And they were dumbfounded. Now, when Jesus comes, he is going to render everything that this guy speaks as nothing. Is that going to be ultimately the judgment? The final judgment? When, when Satan seeks to open up his mouth and seeks to, to make accusations and everything? Christ is going to consume him with just the words of his mouth. And he is going to render him ineffective. How? How is he going to render him ineffective? Look back at the verse. This is exciting. The brightness, the glorious light, brilliance of his coming. If it was midnight, right now, and we had the lights turned off, what would it look like in here? Pretty dark. Assuming that there's, you know, let's, let's even pick the cloudy days like we've had lately, okay? How much would you be able to see? Not a whole lot. We turn off the streetlights too, okay? Don't, these, these illustrations, <coughs> these illustrations really lose, lose a lot here in the United States. But, yeah, I mean, it would be dark. But if somebody walked over and turned on that light switch, what would it be like? Ever done that at nighttime? When you, when you get out of your bed and you walk into the, the bathroom? I, I, I turn on my shower light because it's, it's, it's behind a, a wall a little bit, so it gives me just a, a little bit of light. But every once in a while, I'm tired, and when I walk in, I hit the wrong switch, and I turn on the, the main room's light, and I go, you know? That's the concept. Who is the man of sin? The son of perdition. The one who is exalting himself above everything that is called God. He is what? He's the prince of darkness. He's the, he's the consummation of darkness. And when light shines in his presence, it's going to render him totally ineffective. Illustration that I think potentially originally came from here is the concept of the vampire. Because the vampire goes out and he does his work when? Nighttime. But he has to be what? Back in the coffin. Back in the coffin by when? Or by, daybreak. by daybreak. By the time it turns light. 
You know, because he's, you know, he'll be killed by the light. And so, you know, did the originators of those stories get it from here? Potentially, who knows. But that's the picture. When Jesus Christ comes, the victory that he has is going to be entire. Satan has no power, no dominion, no ability where Jesus Christ is present. Now, application to you and me. Do you get it already? Do you see it? If Jesus Christ is brilliantly present in your life, how much power does the man of sin, the son of perdition, the one who wants to exalt himself above everything else, because we know, Isaiah chapter 14, that this is talking about Satan, because Satan, Lucifer, the son of the morning, has said what? I will be like the Most High God, right? How much power does he have over you? Nothing. Nothing. He is rendered useless and ineffective. He is consumed. And so were his minions at the word of God and the power of his word. When he has power in my life, it's because I have not positioned myself with the Son. And I've placed myself outside of it. Bring that whole thing together again. Remember with the, the punishment of the unbelievers in the presence of them? What have I done? And so let's continue on and finish this up. It's going to be also after he who now restrains is removed. Now the question the debate is, who is that individual who now restrains? There are many people traditionally who believe that that's talking about the church. That it's the Holy Spirit who's restraining. The Holy Spirit is living in the believers. And so when the believers are raptured, then, then the Holy Spirit is removed. And so then this man of lawlessness can be revealed. I don't think that's true. That doesn't make sense with the rest of the passage because we're told that the gathering isn't going to happen until the man of sin is revealed. And so how can the man of sin not be revealed until the church is raptured? Did you get it? If, if this is after he who now restrains is removed, talking about the Holy Spirit living in the church, and the church is raptured, and so therefore the, the man of sin can be revealed, but the, man of, but the church isn't going to be gathered unto the Lord until the man of sin is revealed, it doesn't, they, they both can't happen at the same time. I believe that he who now restrains is the Holy Spirit, but I believe very clearly Jesus talks about in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, John chapter 16, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that is the Holy Spirit's job right now is to convict the world of righteousness, judgment, and sin. And that the Holy Spirit already has a function in this world apart from the sealing presence that he has in, in, his, in the saints. But that the Holy Spirit is working in the world right now. And as the world quenches and rejects the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 1, God gives them over to their own lasciviousness. And so when that happens, God is going to be removing the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit. I think that's what's going on in the United States right now. That over those hundreds of years, God restrained us from ourselves. But that when we chose to believe in the cre um, creation rather than the creator, God said, fine, do it yourself. And he began to remove the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that, that the Holy Spirit is removed from me. It means that the ministry that he has in the world is being 
released here in the United States. And I think the time is coming when that's going to happen worldwide. And so when the Holy Spirit's restraint is removed, then the man of sin is going to be re- fully revealed, and he will be able to do everything he chooses to do at that point. So, the question I ask myself, and I ask you, that is, are you real? Is your faith true? And will you be found genuine in the end? Because in the end, you know, when we talk about those who are falling away, that's when it's going to be found out. If it's in my lifetime, in your lifetime, will we stay true to the end? What impact does it make in my life, in your life, to think of those who may suffer eternal condemnation? The lake of fire is real. It's literal. There will be people that you know and that I know who will be cast into that lake of fire. Do you believe that? If you believe that, and this is something that Bob struggles with because Bob is so, so self-focused, so centralistic, in his thought process sometimes, to, to, to consider the needs of others as being more important than my own. And I've got to picture this in the life of somebody else. So I understand the, the, the imminency of the need. I, mean, I think of your testimony earlier, Lawrence, and clearly we talked to Dave and Catherine when they're here, and this friend of Dave's who took his own life, and Dave said he would be the last person you would have thought. They would have done it. He was the, the life of their, of their group, of their unit, of, of coagulating everybody else. You just never know what's going to occur in somebody's life. The imminency, the importance, the, the, the urgency is the word I'm looking for, of sharing the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then finally then, are you ready to meet the Lord when he comes? What if he came today? What if he came right now? Would you be caught up to meet him in a year? Or would you miss it? Let's pray. Father, I am thankful for your grace and your mercy. I am grateful for your, your gift of salvation. And I'm grateful, Lord, for the promise of the coming of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us each uh, to not operate in fear of the future. But, Lord, we know that where love is, the cat, perfect love casts out fear. And that... If we know you, then there is that love relationship. And that we would then operate under this, this relationship of love. And that we would desire to serve you and to please you and to, to do those things. Lord, we would love those things that you love. We would love those individuals that you love. Lord, help us to be those who are um, desires to see the things that are good being brought forth and not the things that are evil. I do pray, Lord, for this little body of believers, that you would help us to, to stay focused upon the truth of your word. Lord, help us not to, to follow the distractions of the world, the courses of entertainment and frivolity that it seems that we have a tendency to lean toward. Help us to exalt you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.